Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. It's a visit that could spark military action. The lead starts right now. The Chinese army is standing by and ready to respond. That is the warning from China as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi prepares to make a controversial visit to Taiwan any day now. And then deadly fire and rain across the country. In California, the state's largest wildfire of the year explodes. While in Kentucky, the threat of flooding is far from over as the death toll rises and the search for survivors grows more desperate by the hour. Also for you today, throwing questions about the six-game suspension issued to NFL quarterback Deshaun Watson in the wake of sexual misconduct accusations from dozens of women, why it won't cost him most of his $230 million contract. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Monday. And we start with our world lead and dramatic warnings from China today after sources confirmed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will visit Taiwan during her trip to Asia. The stop was not listed on Pelosi's public itinerary when she landed in Singapore this morning. But if she makes the trip, she would be the first House Speaker in 25 years to visit Taiwan. And this morning, Chinese officials warned against the, quote, egregious political impact of a trip to the self-governing island. And hours later, the Chinese military released this video, claiming it will, quote, bury incoming enemies while showcasing weapons and fighting tactics. We should note the Chinese military did not mention Taiwan in that video, but U.S. officials say the Pentagon is working around the clock, monitoring any Chinese movements in the region and securing a plan to keep Pelosi and the congressional delegation she's leading safe. CNN's Will Ripley is live in the Taiwanese capital of Taipei. Will, tell us about these warnings from China today. How serious are they? You know, Pam, I actually am a bit reassured that what we're seeing is kind of the same old boilerplate language. We've heard them say, you play with fire, you're going to get burned. We've heard them say that before. Uh, There have been other U.S. lawmakers uh, or, you know, incidents that made China think that the United States was pushing Taiwan towards formal independence. And they have released propaganda videos of amphibious assaults targeting a Taiwan independence. So this is the same old playbook. I think these videos are largely aimed more at a domestic audience or maybe Chinese living abroad than the, you know, than actually a serious message to the governments themselves, because the serious message would be if China were in some sort of a military buildup, you know, leading up to some sort of a conflict, and that is not happening. This is a rhetorical escalation at this point, and I think Xi Jinping and President Biden share the view that they want to keep it that way. Does Taiwan actually want this visit to happen by Speaker Pelosi? It's a complicated question. I, you know. 
and it's an awkward position that Taiwan's being put in because, yes, of course, they love the fact that, you know, someone who's second in line to the presidency wants to go to Taiwan, wants to be on the ground and learn about the situation there, because then they can take that information, that delegation back to Washington, and it can help shape U.S. policy at a critical time, especially if Taiwan does come under some sort of attack by China. They want U.S. lawmakers who have been on the ground and see the situation. But, you know, the timing of this is not ideal. Remember, Nancy Pelosi was supposed to come earlier this year, and then she got covid the trip being rescheduled just a couple of months before Xi Jinping's party congress, where he, you know, basically wants nothing embarrassing, nothing, you know, nothing out of control, everything structured, you know, so that he's guaranteed to get this unprecedented third presidency and, and maybe even be president for life. So Xi Jinping is so sensitive, and Taiwan government officials know that they have to model their approach for dealing with all of China, one and a half billion people, to Xi Jinping's personality. And so I think. What they've done is basically they've stayed quiet. They didn't put out any messages in support or against, uh, hoping that Beijing will blame the United States for Pelosi's visit and not try to take it out on Taiwan. So how common is it, just for context here, is it for high-ranking U.S. officials to visit Taiwan? I mean, it's been 25 years since a uh, you know, House speaker has visited. It was Newt Gingrich back in 97. And back then, China was also unhappy. Uh, but the United States kind of said, hey, sorry. And China, you know, if you, if you look at where China was then versus now, they had a much smaller military. They had a smaller GDP. They had much less global clout. Uh, and they also didn't have the most powerful leader since Mao and Xi Jinping, you know, about to about to basically secure this position for himself for the rest of his life if he wants. And Xi Jinping now commands a massive army, a huge nuclear arsenal. And he has stated over and over again his intent is to reabsorb Taiwan back into the mainland, even though the communist rulers in Beijing uh, who did win the civil war. But the, the losing side went to went to Taiwan and the communists have never ruled that island. They've never controlled that island, and yet they are determined to take that island back, Pam. All right. Well, Ripley in Taiwan for us. Thank you, Will. And this afternoon, the White House said it will not be intimidated by China's rhetoric, nor will it, quote, take the bait. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is live at the White House. So, Jeremy, is the Biden administration supportive of this decision, this trip by Speaker Pelosi? Well, Pam, the White House says that it is not their role to either approve or disapprove of this trip. They are emphasizing that Pelosi's decision to go is hers and hers alone. But they did warn that China could take escalatory steps in the coming days in response to this visit, which the White House, for the record, is not confirming. What we know the White House and the Biden administration have been doing is providing Pelosi and her team with all of the information and intelligence analysis that they need to make the decision about whether or not to go. Uh, and the U.S. military, of course, is also ensuring her safety as she flies on a military aircraft, which is common procedure for these uh, congressional delegations. What we did hear today from the uh, White House's national security spokesman, John Kirby, is a, a warning, essentially, uh, arguing that nothing about this visit by the Speaker of the House is unprecedented and nothing should really be triggering a response from China. Listen. There is no reason for Beijing to turn a potential visit consistent with longstanding U.S. policy into some sort of crisis or conflict or use it as a pretext to increase aggressive military activity in or around the Taiwan Strait. We will not take the bait or engage in saber-rattling. At the same time, we will not be intimidated. And China has been engaged in that saber-rattling in recent days, uh, ratcheting up their threats. John Kirby calling that rhetoric inflammatory uh, and escalatory. But really what you've seen from the White House and what we heard from Kirby today is, is an attempt to make very clear that this is un not unprecedented uh, and that this should not provoke that kind of uh, reaction from uh, China. 
Inside the White House, though, there's no question that there have been concerns about this potential visit by the Speaker of the House, given the political situation inside of China, given the regional tensions in the region. And interestingly, what we also heard from Kirby today is similar to what we heard before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, not suggesting that an invasion is afoot here, but just the notion that they're trying to preview what China's next move could potentially be. Kirby warning today uh, that we could see military exercises from China. We could see attempts by China to go into Taiwan's air defense zone uh, or even military activity in the Taiwan Strait. The White House wants to make clear that all of that is potentially in the cards, but arguing at the same time that if they do act in reaction to Pelosi's visit, they will simply be using Pelosi's visit as a pretext. Damn. All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House. Thank you. And joining me now to discuss is Robert Daly. He is a former U.S. diplomat in Beijing and now serves as the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. So, Robert, you said this trip was a bad idea in the first place. Are you concerned that China will use this as a pretext for more military action? I don't think they'll take military action in the form of pulling a trigger. I do think they'll take advantage of this to do something slightly escalatory that they haven't done before, like crossing the median line in the Taiwan Strait or going into Taiwan's airspace. And that will set up a new baseline which leads us slightly closer to confrontation. I don't think we're going to be at confrontation this time around, but I don't think that we'll be better off in our relations with Beijing a week from now than we are today. Let's talk a little bit more about the the sensitivities of the timing of this. It's the first time a Speaker of the House has visited, but this time um, there are some additional layers to this trip, right? The biggest additional layer is that sometime this fall, the Chinese Communist Party is going to hold a very large meeting at which Xi Jinping will be anointed for a third term as the leader and possibly will have some new status, which makes him leader for life. And so he is more than usually concerned to have stability, to project wisdom and strength in the lead up to that. So yes, that's a special condition. At the same time, there's never a good time from China's point of view for this to happen. They will always claim that there's some reason that it's a particularly bad moment. And of course, as the Speaker of the House, she is in the presidential line of succession, but there is a difference between a member of Congress and a member of the administration to visit Taiwan. And I'm wondering, does China recognize that distinction or even care? It's America watchers understand this, but they think it's a distinction without a difference. Just as when we look at Chinese statements, we tend to say accurately that they all come from the Communist Party one way or the other. Uh, China takes the view of the United States that all, everything that we do is attributable to American policy, and so they're deeply concerned. Just hours after news of Pelosi's trip broke, China's military released this highly produced video where it says it's going to, quote, bury incoming enemies while showing off its weapons and fighting tactics. Should the U.S. take this as some kind of warning? I think your reporter in Taiwan had it right. This is mostly for domestic consumption. They want it. They want to look strong before the Chinese people. They do not want a conflict with the United States right now. Still, this kind of rhetoric obligates them to do something that they haven't done before. And so again, even if it's a minor uh, act that they take, which doesn't threaten us directly, it's going to change the status quo slightly in a very dangerous part of the world. So then what does a win look like for Speaker Pelosi and the U.S. in your view? Well, for Speaker Pelosi, I think that just going there and coming out, which is what's going to happen, will be a win. She'll claim that she is a defender of human rights and democracy went and stood by the people of Taiwan. The question is, does that really benefit United States interests? Does it help to lower the flame under U.S.-China relations, which are at a boiling point already? Does it really make the people of Taiwan more secure, or does it just make her glad that she took this trip? I'm worried that this is being driven 
not by a real plan for U.S.-China relations, uh, but simply by the desire of, in this case, Speaker Pelosi, but also other politicians, to go to Taiwan. What is your concern then, looking ahead, the long-term relationship and the impact uh, between China and the United States? There is an increasing likelihood that the United States and China could end up in conflict. The goal of our relationship should be to avoid war with China. The most likely flashpoint for a war is Taiwan. There are others. Therefore, our goal needs to, try to, needs to be to try to reassure China that while we stand with the people of Taiwan and will not allow them to be coerced, we also don't seek Taiwanese independence. I think that's the piece that's been missing. We've been deterring China, but we haven't been reassuring it. All right, Robert Daly, thank you for offering your insight and expertise on this. Well, deadly flames exploding into California's largest wildfire this year. The fire is so big it is now creating its own weather. And then a showdown in Arizona between Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Why these endorsements could have ripple effects well beyond the midterms. We'll be right back. Ferocious fires out west top our Earth Matters series. The McKinney Fire in Northern California is growing at an alarming rate. It has already burned more than 55,000 acres since it ignited on Friday, becoming the state's largest fire so far this year. Two people were found dead inside a burned vehicle in a driveway in the fire's path. The fire is currently 0% contained. It's so intense it's creating its own weather in the form of pyrocumulus clouds. And meanwhile, in my home state of Kentucky, the death toll from last week's catastrophic flooding is now up to 35. And officials fear that number will rise. Hundreds are still unaccounted for. Resources such as food and water are desperately needed. And to make matters worse, a flood watch is in effect tonight until tomorrow morning for eastern Kentucky. Thunderstorms could dump one to two inches of rain an hour in some places. CNN's Diane Gallagher has a harrowing stories of those who survived and those who were lost. Certainly the deadliest and the most devastating of my lifetime. Kentucky's governor confirming today at least 35 people are dead in the flood-stricken Commonwealth, including four siblings from Knott County, the youngest just two years old. This as the desperate search for hundreds of missing people continues with the looming threat of more rain. There are hundreds of unaccounted for people, minimum, and we just we just don't have a firm grasp on that. Floodwaters knocked out vital power, washed away roads and bridges, and overwhelmed eastern Kentucky communities, making some rescue efforts nearly impossible. If they get in that river, it's going to be dangerous for Randy Polly shot this video, showing someone jumping into action to save an elderly woman and her family. He was in there for like two minutes, what seemed like for an eternity. Then he come back out. He said, I finally found him. Another rescue. A 17-year-old saved herself and her dog by swimming to a neighbor's roof when flash flooding started last Thursday. Her dad writing on Facebook, we lost everything today. Everything except what matters most. Emergency shelters are opening across eastern Kentucky, including Gospel Light Baptist Church in Hazard. Nicole Neese is staying here with her family. I woke up at 4.50. I heard a loud noise. And whenever I did, I got my flashlight and I looked out the window and it was already halfway up our um, living room window. She tells us they got out with only the clothing on their backs. There's nothing left. Everything's destroyed. Nisa's sister, Karen Daughtry, says this isn't the first tragedy for her family. Uh, two years ago, we had lost everything to a fire and we were just now getting back on our feet. I mean, it's just devastating that we have to go through it again so soon. 
And to give you an idea of the force of this flooding here, that is a fire truck. It's one that they used. It's old, but operational, or it was. That's a canoe that a man hitched a ride more than a mile after seeing it pass him on a gas station during the flood. And look, Pamela, throughout all of eastern Kentucky, you see this. This is people, pieces of people's lives, their homes, just scattered throughout the banks of rivers, on roads, in the communities. It's going to get worse, unfortunately. There is bad news on the way and not good news because in the forecast for tonight and tomorrow are more rains, the potential for more storms and even more flooding. Before they've had a chance to dig out, let alone take a breath, Pamela, they need help and they need donations, they say. They need it now. They cannot catch a break. Diane Gallagher, yep. thank you. So what is the delay? A vote in the Senate on the bill providing health care to veterans sickened by toxic military burn sites is pushed back. In our health lead, you're watching veterans and supporters protest on Capitol Hill. Some stayed all weekend rallying against the 25 Republican senators who held up passage of the PACT Act, which would provide life-saving care to veterans exposed to toxic burn pits during their service. Listen to advocate and comedian John Stewart making a direct appeal to senators today. Keep the lights on, keep the doors open, and don't leave here tonight until you do the right thing by these folks. <clears throat> Simple as that. Don't make this harder than it is. Republican Senator Pat Toomey says he and other Republicans oppose the way a specific part of the bill is categorized, saying it would, quote, allow our Democratic colleagues to go on an unrelated $400 billion spending spree. Joining us now to discuss Senator John Tester, a Democrat from Montana and chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee. Hi, Senator. So I, I spoke with Two wives of veterans on my show, um, they, their husbands have illnesses they say are related to the toxins from burn pits from their deployments. They say every day this bill is delayed, a life could be further at risk. Here's what one of them said. I'd hate to think of how many more people would put, you know, a, a gun to their head and take their lives because they're losing their jobs, they're losing their homes, there's no compensation, there's no benefits. Um, so I know that we'd have much more of a huge loss in that side of veteran suicide. Obviously, it was a Republican's vote, which is why it wasn't passed. But originally, Senator Schumer said the vote could be today. Now it's pushed back. Why isn't this getting voted on today? I, I can't answer that, Pamela. I mean, it should have been done last week. Uh, and uh, every day that goes by, there's another veteran that potentially could lose their life uh, or more than one. Um, and so we're in a situation that's, that's quite frankly, pretty silly. Uh, and, and, and honestly, over the weekend, as I made phone calls, I think it was badly represented uh, what, what, how this bill was changed because it wasn't changed at all. It is exactly the same bill we voted on on June 16th, with the exception of one sentence that was taken out of the bill that allowed the VA to, uh, to buy out uh, provider contracts. And the reason it was taken out is because that was deemed a revenue raiser. So it was de minimis. The language is de minimis. It's the same bill we voted on on June 16th. We need to pass this bill, move on. And I would say one other thing, Pamela, the folks that are out here uh, sticking up for their, their, their brothers and sisters who have, who have fought that are on the Capitol steps, uh, I, I can't thank them enough because quite frankly, that's what this is about. It's about the fighting men and women who have returned from theater and from service to this country who have been changed. We promised them, 
we would make them whole. We promised them we would back them up. We promised them we'd give them health care and benefits if they had injury. And that's what this bill does. And uh, it's time to get it passed. And hopefully Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer will talk today and come up with a, an agreement to get this, vote, this, this bill voted on and passed. If it's the exact same bill from what these 25 Republicans voted for in June, why do you think they voted against it this time around? Because my understanding was, and folks told me this, that in caucus they were presented with a $400 billion slush fund, which is baloney, and I'm being generous when I say baloney, and, and, and that uh, this bill wasn't the bill we voted on on June 16th. It is the bill. It's absolutely the bill. And by the way, we wouldn't have this bill back again if we didn't have this one sentence that we had to take out. So, um, you know, this is a crazy place, Pamela, and it does crazy things, but I don't know that I've seen anything more crazy than this. This is, this is, this is just crazy, and we need to get it done because our veterans need the health care and the benefits. We promised them the health care and the benefits. This bill backs that up. And as I said on the floor last week, we've got an all-volunteer military. Our young people are looking at this going, why would ever I sign on the dotted line if these folks aren't going to live up to their end of the bargain? This bill allows us to live up to our end of the bargain. Do you, do you buy, though, what, what you say, what the Republicans have said that, 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 about the $400 billion slush fund? I mean, do you really buy that that is why they voted against it? I think they believed it was in there because uh, the senator from Pennsylvania said it was in there. It's not in there. And uh, can, can, the, can, can money be moved around during the appropriations process? Absolutely can. The senators do that. And, and the president has to justify every dollar that's spent in any veterans bill. I know that because I'm chair of the Veterans Affairs Committee. If we don't think those funds are justified, we don't put them in. Or if we think they need more money to do their job, we put more money than, than they asked for in. It happens during every appropriations process. And it will happen on this one. But, but the truth is, is that there is no $400 billion slush fund. The VA can't just move money around uh, at their own whim. That's all directed by Congress. And with oversight of Congress, it, it, it works. And the process does work. We might say we spent too much money or too little money, but Congress is the one that makes that determination, not the VA. All right, very quickly, um, what do you tell your constituents about this? I mean, everyone thought that this, this vote would go through. What I tell my constituents is I'm going to continue to work as hard as I can to do right by the men and women who serve this country in the military. And this is doing right by the men and women who serve this military. And I will continue to work as long as I have to work to get this bill across the finish line. Why? Because it's important. It's what this country stands for and it's who we are as a nation. If we don't live up to our promises, how can we expect anybody to live up to any deal that we make? Democratic Senator John Tester, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And if you or a loved one is struggling, you can call or text the Suicide Lifeline at 988. That number also links to the Veterans Crisis Line. And still ahead, why the Trump-backed candidate in the Michigan Republican primary is now being accused of joining the so-called establishment. Just into our politics lead moments ago, a federal judge handed down the toughest punishment yet for a January 6th defendant. Guy Reffitt was sentenced to more than seven years in prison for his role in the Capitol riot, including bringing a gun to the U.S. Capitol and interfering with police. Reffitt was a member of the extremist group The Three Percenters and was the first Capitol rioter to be convicted by a jury. Reffitt was turned into the FBI by his son, who will be on CNN's New Day tomorrow morning. 
Also in our politics lead, voters in five states go to the polls tomorrow for primary elections, Missouri, Kansas, Michigan, Arizona, and Washington. There's big focus on Michigan. You're looking at the four main candidates vying to be the Republican nominee for governor. The winner of this primary will get to face current Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who is seeking a second term. Former President Trump backed Tudor Dixon Friday night. CNN's Sarah Murray is in Grand Rapids tracking how Trump's election lies are driving this race. In the waning hours of Michigan's chaotic Republican primary fight. Who here can't wait for me to debate Governor Whitmer? We can't elect shiny pennies. We'll fight until the very last moment of Tuesday. Former President Donald Trump is trying to tip the scales for Tudor Dixon. A fantastic, brilliant candidate, Tudor Dixon. Throwing his support behind the conservative commentator in a bitter fight to take on Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer this fall. The last few years have been tough, but we're tougher and getting things done right now. Dixon widely viewed as the establishment pick after winning the backing of Betsy DeVos, Trump's former education secretary who resigned after January 6th. She went from embracing election falsehoods and claiming Trump won Michigan in 2020 in a May debate to dodging recent questions about who she believes won Michigan in 2020, a state Joe Biden carried by more than 154,000 votes. I've talked about this at length, about the 2020 election. It was unlike any election we'd ever seen, obviously, because of the pandemic. But in Michigan, there were some things that happened in Michigan that didn't happen in other states, which are very concerning. After a prolonged primary that saw a handful of candidates disqualified from the ballot and another arrested for his alleged participation in the Capitol riot, Republican political strategist John Yobb says Trump's 11th hour endorsement is rankling some of his biggest backers. His supporters are a bit dazed and confused as to uh, what to do in the future now that their leader has sided with the establishment. Now Dixon's opponents are slamming her for dancing around 2020. She got an endorsement and within 48 hours when she was asked on national TV if the election was stolen, she changed her mind. Kevin Rinke accepts Biden as president but says there were irregularities in 2020. Garrett Saldano is doubling down on election falsehoods and all things Trump. The election, in my humble opinion, was stolen. I'm not even endorsed by President Trump and I still have his back. And even though, sir, you didn't endorse me, you're still my president. And Ryan Kelly, who pleaded not guilty to charges for his alleged participation in the January 6th riot, is using his arrest as a campaign rallying cry. I got arrested. I got kicked off Airbnb. As for Dixon, she's shrugging off the deluge of criticism and looking ahead to November. My Democrat opponents actually have a whole thing, a whole list of reasons they hate me because of the election, right? So I guess it's just a campaign tactic. Now, we talked to a number of voters who said they were disappointed by the former president's endorsement. He's going to be working to shore up support for Tudor Dixon tonight, holding a tele-rally for her. Pam? All right, Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. David, I'm going to kick it off to you first. (laughs) Talking about Trump's election lies. Here we go. Taking front and center in the primary, clearly, as Sarah laid out there. What do you make of what we're seeing? Look, you know, uh, Republican primaries, just like Democratic primaries, are governed and, and, and largely run and controlled by the, the extreme wings of the party, right? So it's just like in Pennsylvania. We saw we had numerous candidates running in Pennsylvania uh, for governor and, uh, and for Senate, uh, just a handful for Senate. But, uh, you know, the former president came in and threw his weight behind two particular individuals, and they ended up winning with a, a plurality, not a majority of the votes, but a plurality of the votes. And then come this fall, those, those candidates are in a much tougher race against strong Democrats because— you know, the president's a big asset in a Republican primary, but not so much in a general election in a, in a purple state like Michigan or Pennsylvania. So it's not surprising to see 
you know, uh, what, what you're going to see here in Michigan and some of these other states, but it makes it a lot tougher to get elected in the general election in the fall. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think that I think that that's probably something the Democrats are counting on. It's the only thing that gives them hope, frankly, in the midterm elections is that they're the, they're going to the Republicans are going to end up choosing people that are so far out of the mainstream and who are on the record saying things that sound kind of crazy, frankly, um, and then they they won't be electable. So, you know, I think in this case, it's more of Trump jumping on the bandwagon. Right. You know, this was somebody who was Tudor Dixon was somebody who was backed by Betsy DeVos and all of the DeVos money and influence. And it seems like he's trying to up his sort of win loss record and just jumping on this at the last minute because she's not even necessarily the Trumpiest candidate of the bunch. No, but she is a leading candidate in the Republican primary race for governor there. What do you make of the strategy, Eva? Well, I don't know if it is a strategy. I don't know if the former president employs strategy. Sometimes it's just kind of vibes. He does what he wants. <laughs> um, but but some of the things that I think, you know, historically Trump has been animated by is someone who's dynamic. She appears to be so. Uh, former, I think uh, she was in television. Um, she uh, is telegenic. And, you know, that's no commentary on the fact that uh, she's a woman. He, and for both Trump women loved, and men, yeah, we know loves folks who are telegenic. Yeah. Yep. Um, it also helps if he gets a win in Michigan. If she goes ahead and ascends to the governorship, it's really helpful for the former president to have a political ally in a swing state. So those could be some of the reasons that he is coming in with this final hour endorsement. And she's also criticized Michigan's top election official, too, even though there's been some ambiguity around uh, uh, what, what she thinks and how she assesses the 2020 election. She still has executed and employed Trumpism in some of her rhetoric as well there. Um, but, but it's interesting. I mean, we, you know, you see on the flip side of this, uh, Democrats also kind of trying to uh, executing a strategy to respond to the prominence of some of the extremism and candidates in the Republican Party that are running. We've seen, you know, a strategy of Democrats responding with donations as well. Right. I mean, we see it. We're seeing it in Peter Meyer's uh, district mm-hmm. there in Michigan. What do you make of this strategy? Are you concerned it's going to I think this is a really hard issue. I, I, I understand. I mean, of course, there's always a fear that could backfire, but there's also the issue of is this okay, right? When you have a member of Congress who stands up against his party, does the right thing, um, and then you basically undermine him in his election. And Peter I, Meyer, of course, just for our viewers, sorry, he's a Republican yes. who voted uh, for the Right, so you want to encourage Republicans to do the right thing, to do what's best for the country, not what's best for the party. No, but if you're a Republican, I mean, if you're a Democratic Party strategist, you are looking at this and saying, what's most important is that we have a Democratic-run Congress. And so even though we don't want to necessarily do this to this one person who did the right thing, we can't afford to have that speaker's gavel in the hand of a Republican. So we have to do this. It's just it's a very unseemly kind of thing to to have to do. But when you consider the stakes, which is would there even be a January 6th committee? Would there even be a January 6th committee? I mean, you have to think about this. Like when I say the states, it's not just the Democrats versus Republicans. It's actually like, would we even ever have known what had happened? Would we? What would happen when they have to certify an election? Right? These are these are life or death issues. They're existential issues for the country. They're not just about Democrat versus. I, Democrat. I was going to say this only works when it's a purple district too, right? So mm-hmm. this district was Justin Amash's district before, right? It's not it's not particularly um, you know uh, Democrat or Republican. I don't know if it's, whether it's plus one or two D or R, but it's going to be a yeah, close. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a jump ball. So that why that's why they're trying to paint uh, you know mayors as being so you know kind of you know, out there. So he'll lose in the primary and you'll get a more conservative Republican. That'll be a weaker uh, candidate for the fall. So it, it doesn't, that doesn't work. That strategy's not going to work in many places. 
handful of districts across the country. I think it diminishes them. It diminishes Democrats, though, and it makes their arguments about how our democracy is the most important issue. It makes that argument weaker. I just don't see this. If you're thinking about legacy, if you're thinking about long term strategy, I think, you know, they're doing it because they think it's it's going to well, help. Help them win. Also, there's a risk where <laughs> that candidate but could get elected. But having a democracy awful. is kind of central yeah, to that. But, so if you do believe that, look, I'm not saying this isn't a hard issue. I'm just saying, but if you do believe that the, the, the Republicans are as a party anti-democratic, they are. So if you believe that they're an anti-democratic party, they, we just we watch them all the time talking about how the election was stolen. You have the leading contender for the White House saying the election was stolen. I mean, it's undermining democracy. You had you had people who were perfectly fine not certifying election results. I mean, these Kristen, are serious I think, that's, I think you're painting with a broad brush there to say that you think it's a broad party. brush that they oh, didn't I certify I think, the I, election. I, I, no, I, who didn't certify? That the there were Republicans. There were certain Republicans. Of, that there were members there's of certain the Republican listen, party. Listen, I, I can tell you for I can tell you for four years I sat at this table. While the Democratic Party, you and others, pushed a Russian collusion. Oh, no, no, listen. You you and others, listen, but you you pushed the fact that the Republicans, the election was was tweaked by the Russians. And, no, and I mean, people did this. It, it, I know, but if yeah, you're going to point at me, no. making sure what you're you saying is something say, I actually said. But, 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 Kristen, so, you can't just paint with a brush and say all Republicans. I'm a Republican. I didn't say all Republicans. Yes, you did. I you said, said the, the Republican Party, Party is right. anti-democratic. Well, it is. Actually, I, I do. Uh, this is a good segue <laughs> into to what Max Boot told me last night. He is a conservative columnist for The Washington Post. He has big concerns about the future of America, the future of democracy. And David, on the other end of this, I want to get your take on what he said. He said, basically, if Donald Trump is reelected... In 2024, that is the end of of democracy as we know it in America. (laughs) Let's take a listen. Donald Trump remains the most popular Republican in the country and remains the front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination. And if he comes back into office, I just don't know that our democracy can survive that. I don't know democracy can survive that. Yeah, well, well, how is he getting elected? Democratically, people in America. what, What is everybody around this table missing? About Donald Trump. We're missing something. Because if, if 76, 77 million people are going to vote for Donald Trump for president, that's that's democracy. That's how democracy works, that's Max. That's not what Max is saying. Well, that's Max how it works. Is saying, but this is it's democracy to get him in there, and then you don't have democracy again. Where were you on January 6th? What, why why, why, why are we going to have democracy about? again? <laughs> why like, you have democracy I don't know again? We're going to continue this conversation. <laughs> I can tell you that right now, because this is a good one. Unfortunately, we have to go. But a, a really important conversation to be had, and we will continue it. Thank you both. All of you, I should say. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No. Zola and Eva, you were great too, but it really, this was where the action was there in the last few minutes. All right, up next, a Ukrainian soldier so badly injured he almost lost his leg. Why he wants to return to the front lines as soon as possible. We are back with our world lead. The first shipment of Ukrainian grain left its port in the Black Sea today in what the United Nations calls, quote, an enormous collective achievement. But on land, it is a different story. The port city of Mykolaiv came under intense shelling over the weekend. The mayor says it was the strongest since the war began, and several civilian buildings, including a hospital trauma center, were bombed. CNN's Jason Carroll is in Ukraine, where he met a soldier sidelined because of a severe battle wound, but longing to rejoin the fight. We want to warn you, viewers, you may find some of these images disturbing. Yuri Gudimenko is just out of the hospital after doctors spent more than a month tending to his injuries. This is a shrapnel from the leg. Yeah, from here. 
an unwelcome souvenir of war, another piece embedded in his chest. His leg shattered so badly, these rods now hold it together. This video showing the moments after Gudimenko was injured and rescued in June by fellow soldiers who were fighting alongside him on Ukraine's eastern front, an area where Ukrainians have managed in places to hold back the Russian advance. Gudimenko was laying a mine when he was hit by Russian mortar fire. Doctors initially thought his leg needed to be amputated, but they saved it and his life. I feel the pain, uh, but, uh, but I feel also uh, an angry and uh, my angry is more bigger than the pain. Patriotism, sense of duty, anger, there are a range of reasons for what continues to motivate Ukrainians to join the military. But anger is one reason this new soldier, who will soon be deployed to the Eastern Front, gave up his job as a personal trainer to join the fight. The soldiers ask that we not show their faces to protect their security. Do you have any worries about going there? Uh, of course, but my hate is much more than any worries. He says he did not tell his family he joined the military. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's going to work? Uh, they will be worrying less for some time. Family, not an issue for this young soldier, who says his father is already fighting for Ukraine, and he says his decision to join was not about emotion. But Yuri Gudimenko says it is hard for him not to give in to his emotions. He says as soon as he's well enough, he would like to go back to the front line, despite his wife's objections. She says no woman in the world wants her man to go fight, but respects his desire. One Gudimenko says is also personal. Now I have a personal motivation too, because I need to revenge for this want to gut all the enemies of my country and uh, kill them, kill them all. And like so many soldiers who have been badly injured in this war, it could take months or even longer for Yuri to get back on his feet again. But he says, uh, Pamela, if you had to do it all over again, he would do it all over again. You heard one of the emotions that's driving him anger. Something else he told me, he said he wanted to get revenge for those that did this to him. Pamela? Pamela, I remember feeling that way. Jason Carroll in Ukraine, thank you. And coming up on this Monday, he is facing accusations of sexual misconduct from dozens of women. And now there are growing questions about NFL quarterback Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension. In our sports lead, NFL quarterback Deshaun Watson has been suspended six games without pay for violating the league's personal conduct policy amid accusations of sexual misconduct. More than two dozen women have accused Watson of sexual misconduct during massages. The judge appointed by the NFL and Players Association who made the ruling today says Watson's pattern of conduct is more egregious than any before reviewed by the NFL. 
Watson, who recently signed with the Cleveland Browns for a guaranteed $230 million, will not be fined and is allowed to use the team's massage therapists. The Browns owners released a statement saying, in part, quote, We respect Judge Robinson's decision and at the same time empathize and understand that there have been many individuals triggered throughout this process. The NFL says it is reviewing the suspension. I'm Pamela Brown, and for Jake Tapper, our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 